What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes and Spotify. Also, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we've got a guy who is absolutely a legendary piece of Austin music history. His name is Wayne Nagel. He is the one of the founders of the Arc Rehearsal Complex, which you may have heard of. Austin Rehearsal Complex. Austin Rehearsal mm-hmm. Complex. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't heard of the building, you may have heard of the band, the Arc Angels. They took their name from the building because they rehearsed there. Uh, Wayne was also instrumental in buying talent in an er- early version of the Back Room, legendary Back Room nightclub here in Austin, Texas. He also is a tour manager, does uh, work with CCR, went out with Charlie Sexton, Eric Johnson. Uh, just, Many I others. Mean, Ray Wiley Hubbard, I think is who he's currently working with now is Ray Wiley Hubbard. Ray Wiley Hubbard, yeah. And we should point out that he's also one of the founders of the Sims Foundation, which if you're not familiar with, we'll talk about in this episode and get to know a little bit more about that organization, which does amazing things. So. I, I like uh, yeah. it that he's uh, he's an old friend. Um, yeah. You know, he's uh, he's kind of had my back, I could say, more than once. Um, but, you know, when you kind of think about the Sims Foundation, he sort of has a lot of people's back, doesn't he? Yeah. He really uh, he's does. he's a he's a, a really great soul. Uh, you know, he's if you talk about Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Jimmy Vaughan and and uh, David Bowie and of course the Sexton brothers uh, Charlie and Will and uh, Joe Ely and uh, just uh, you know people he's got stories about Michael Wagner who produced Dokken and Metallica he has stories about uh, you know he's got a Spiders from Mars connection. He yeah. uh, he's just one of the most interesting people that I've ever met, and he's the nicest guy in the room. Um, it was uh, you know I have to give credit to our producer Jared Tooten, who was in Pariah, and uh, Wayne was one of the co-managers of Pariah. Jared is also uh, not only the producer of the Talk Louder podcast; he's my songwriting partner in Broken Teeth, as a lot of you already know. Um, he was one of the, he was the last member to join, uh, Pariah cause they used to be a four piece Jared making them a five piece. They went on to get a record deal and, and work with Tom Werman. And anyway, uh, you know, Wayne was a big player in all of that and was around in the shift between, you know, when hair metal became grunge, just as far as where your parents' money went, um, I think that, you know, if if you when you watch this uh, or listen to this episode of the Talk Louder podcast, it's most definite that you are going to learn something really cool about Austin, Texas or a band or a guitar player that you really adore. Without further ado, Wayne Nagel on the Talk Louder podcast. (laughs) 
What's the the record or the band or you know how did you get into music or in particular rock rock music? What was the record that like made you sell your soul to the devil? What exactly was it? I can tell you what it changed my life. It was uh, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Yes, uh, I was when it came out in uh, the summer of 1965. I was 11 years old. I got a transistor radio for my birthday uh, from my grandparents. And uh, I heard it, uh, heard that song on, uh, I was living in the Bay Area, I was living in Richmond, California, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I heard it on KFRC, and that changed my life. You know, I uh, grew my hair as long as, as they would let you, and, you know, took guitar lessons and bought Beetle Boots. In fact, I had a Brian Jones haircut, is what I had. But uh, Yeah, cool. And then, uh, then the follow-up single for Satisfaction was uh, uh, Get Off My Cloud. By that, that one-two punch, they had me, and I've been a... Rolling Stone fan uh, ever since. In fact, uh, it's it's my religion. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a so great way. You are so welcome on this podcast. But you just said the magic <laughs> fucking words, man. So it, it's safe to assume we'll see you out uh, at the Stones gig in what fifteen days? Or yeah, what? yeah, November twentieth. In fact, I'm flying in. Luckily, I've I've got a gig where I'm working with Ray Wiley Hubbard, and they they know uh, that it's my religion, and they're letting me. Uh, have a night off. I'm flying in from Fort Smith, Arkansas. So uh, fingers crossed, everything will work out. Yeah. Uh, as long as I make it to Dallas, if I can make it to Dallas, I think I'll make it home. So yeah. you're a, you're a card carrying member, Rolling Stones limited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, a Rolinga. I don't know if you've heard of okay. the Rolingas. No, I haven't. The, the Rolingas are a, uh, uh, I want to say religious cult, but they're a cult out of a uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina that, they worship the Rolling Stones. That's their life. Uh, because, um, in fact, when we, with, with Creedence Clearwater, we play South America a lot. And I noticed when I was in our, when Buenos Aires, I'd see lots of Rolling Stone tongue shirts and tattoos, you know, with the crew working. I, I saw that. And then when I, I saw this documentary and, uh, the Rolling Stones were one of the first bands in 1995 when the, 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 uh, dictatorship fell, they wouldn't let any, any rock and roll in Argentina, especially British, because of you know the war with the British, the Falklands, and the Rolling Stones were one of the first ones to come in. And Credence came in right after. That's one of the reasons I think my theory why there, we were so big there. You know, we our biggest uh, our biggest play was uh, Argentina, was Buenos Aires. But uh, wow. anyway, they they worship the Stones and uh, look it up Rolingas. And they're wow, uh, that's cause, cool because they would go to jail for listening to the Stones or the Beatles or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, up, up until wow. 1995. Just think that that wasn't that long ago. You know, we were all full blown adults in 95. I was in the yeah. middle of the arc and, you know, right. you, you were uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's amazing. So let's so, start, you know, that you're, you're kind of, you're kind of uh, setting us up for the episode. David, you had a thought. What was yeah, that? While we're on go. the subject of the stones playing in Austin here in a few days, uh, Wayne, I wanted to ask you, I, I think I saw somewhere that the Austin date is the last date of the tour. And I don't know if that's the last date of this particular leg or if it's the last date of the tour. Well, it was the last date of the tour. They just added the hard rock in uh, Miami or Hollywood, Florida, wherever it is. We've played it before. Uh, the whole 7,000, it's a small amphitheater. I've played it with Credence and maybe Eric Johnson, but uh, that's the last one. And that's, you can't get tickets. I don't even know if the tickets are open to the public, but it's 7,000, but that's the last one. And then my theory is that'll be it. What, what hold on, Wayne, what wow. is 7,000? 
Seven thousand. It holds seven thousand seats. Oh, it holds seven thousand seats. seats. I you're saying, how much for a ticket? Well, I don't know. Because <laughs> they <laughs> seven thousand. Yeah, yeah. seven thousand yeah. seats. It's a seven thousand <laughs> seater. Gotcha. Whereas they've been playing stadiums yeah. that hold uh, eighty to a hundred thousand, and who knows how many will come out to the racetrack. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a small, intimate. I think a, a goodbye. Now, my theory is because they've always said that when Charlie quits. They quit. They've always said that. And they had these gigs booked. Um, you know, they had these gigs booked before COVID. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's when he got sick and had to step out. And and yeah. I know on a way smaller level, working with Credence, because we had to, just last uh, in October of 2019, we had to cancel three shows in Chile because of riots. And that promoter is still hounding us to come back and make those shows up. You know, right. Uh, right. You know it's not going to happen. Right. Uh, but he's right. still handing the guys, but I know that on that level to make up, they already canceled once. I think that they're just doing it, uh, get it done because originally on this tour, they were going to do, uh, Europe and I, you know, I check, I don't check it every day, but I check their website quite often. And those Europe dates have never come up and the Europe dates would be in the spring. And you know, you're, you're, you're announcing your spring shows now. So yeah, I think that the, that the Austin show will be there their last big one to the public that's with a, a Florida that's, show being the last one. That's kind of a cool thing. That's, that's for, why I asked because I was, I was curious to know if it was possible that I might actually see the very last stones gig ever, because you know, you the could, situation well, with Charlie and the, and the tour and of course their age, but we said that in 85 too. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I, yeah. Last I, you know, last I saw, it was highly possible that Austin might be the last Stones gig yeah. ever, and that would be a real. It, it, you know, could, it would, would have been, but they did add that Florida show oh, at gotcha. the Hard Rock. But I think that's that's just for all the you know, uh, those tickets are long gone, and I I, I think you know to, to get them on you know online or whatever, you know, from the scalpers are in the thousands of dollars. But that's not even on you know. I get them. I get my tickets through the VIP. Uh, friends and family of the Stones from a connection I got through Charlie Sexton back in 84. Um, and that it's not listed on that. Uh, uh, you know, it's not listed on that to, to go on because uh, I looked. This is you like know, a top secret. It's like a top secret military operation. Well, what I like yeah, about so this good. is this has been a segment of how you got hooked on the Talk Louder podcast, and now we have an episode to do. But the thing is, <laughs> is, in, is in all of this, how you got hooked. You, I don't want to call it name dropped, but you, you brought up the ARC, the ARC, which is stand, stands for the Austin Rehearsal Complex, which you were co-owner, manager of. Well, with Don which Harvey. Was, which was in the yeah. mid, mid to late 90s, which yeah. spawned, Eight, a, spawned yeah. a lot. Of, what was the dates? It's 89 to 99. 89. Wow. Yeah, 89 right. to 99. Oh, ten, ten, we had the last T-shirt and we had our, we had 10 good years. We had our, our, our party, 10 good years. Yeah. It was 10 good years. In fact, uh, uh, you were there. Yeah, I was there. You, were to, yeah, yeah, you, was you, there. you worked with us. Yeah, I was a proud employee and Dave brought the beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to show up at, uh, I was hanging out with a local punk rock band called the contradicts and they, they could uh, only afford to, to rehearse. They could only afford the rent at like midnight or something. Right, like right. That. So me and the punk rockers always showed up at like midnight with an ice chest full of beer. 
and stayed till way later than we should have. I gotta say, I gotta jump in. That is so awesome. One that that Dave was like, you know, hanging with the punk rockers at midnight at the ARC, and the fact that the ARC the rates would go down. Right. We, at, we at, at, at when the when it was slow. Yeah, we had a musician special, which would be at the late night or or in the early day when no one when most people at work that we had yeah. we had uh, for seventy five dollars for the small rooms and a hundred dollars for the medium rooms you could get five three hour rehearsals uh, for seventy five bucks five three hour rehearsals and let's face it you can do a set you can learn a set in a, oh yeah in five I rehearsals that, I think that punk rock band learned two sets <laughs> man that is cheap. the contradicts I remember the contradicts yeah, yeah. it was Houston yeah. Richardson and. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bobby Fuentes and uh, Sean was the front guy. I, I can't remember his last name. And they, they had a number of different bass players. Uh, but I'll tell you the first time I ever set foot in the arc, I was a student at what was then called Southwest Texas State, which is now Texas State University in San Marcos. And I was working on a journalism degree. I wanted to be a rock journalist and write for Rolling Stone and all that good stuff. Well, my first trip to the arc was to interview Ian Moore. So cool. I walked into the Ark and I was just, you know, I'd heard about the place. I knew the reputation of the place. And I just, I felt like I was walking into hallowed halls, you know, right. and it was you so were. cool. I was. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah. was. And just all the memorabilia on the walls and knowing the history and the people that have walked in and out of that place. I mean, I just felt like I was in a really special. Well, you, you, you very easily were probably breathing the same air in that exact moment of a fabulous Thunderbird or a Sexton. Yeah. Or a Doug Psalm. Or a Psalm. Yeah. Or a Psalm. Son of Psalm. <laughs> yeah. Psalm. There was about three of them in there at one time. Yeah, we had three Psalms. Yeah. But, you know, I want to say one of the reasons that we were able to have the ARC and it was, it was so professional is because we were the first recipient of the Austin music industry loan program where the city of Austin loaned wow. to us. Um, I forget how much money it was, but you know, at that time, banks weren't loaning uh, bands or musicians money. And no. so they came up with this loan program. In fact, Pariah uh, got on it and got bought a, a van and trailer with it, but we got, we were the first, big ones because we, we, we checked all the boxes. We we're having employees. It was something that was needed. Um, and we had to go, get approved by the city council, but they loaned us, I, I think what they loaned us, whatever it was, let's just, I'll just make up a figure. Let's say they loaned us a hundred thousand and then, uh, the bank, uh, matched the hundred thousand. It was at 3% interest, which was real low at the time. Yeah. And we were able in 1989 build that, uh, uh, you know, and we are able to do it right for soundproofing and have the right gear and, and, and hire people, et cetera. Uh, you guys started a started a trend is the way I said, because rehearsal halls, uh, you know, places you could go work on your your craft were like uh, gutted out, uh, you know, storage units and things like that. Right. Um, and, uh, or, or, or someone would have a room in the back of a studio at Arlen or something that you, if you knew the right people, you could, you could sneak in there and rehearse your shit, but you guys started a whole thing. We, we I mean, started. I think, 
I think that soon after that, uh, you know, the Cabela's, uh, the had Cabela's great... came in, they, they came in, we were, we were going about five or six years when they came in and, yeah. and, and did, uh, they, I think they built three of them total. They did a fantastic job. They did a really good job and, and ser- servicing the Austin community much in the same respect and in the way, cause it, that was a hub as well. Metal Dave, I know you showed up at a bunch of punk rock rehearsals at that, at those places too. Yeah. 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 Getting so, back to where you said we were the first professional when yes. we had to sell it to the city when I was given, you know, given our pitch. Uh, one of the city, I was, what I was saying was that uh, I was working with Charlie Sexton and we either just did a tour of Japan or we had just got back from a tour or we were getting ready to go to a tour of Japan. And half our organization lived in Austin, which I thought was the important half, Charlie and I, and another half lived uh, in L.A. and we were having to rehearse in L.A., which had them. That's how I you know, got the idea. Rehearse in L.A. And I was saying that that we had uh, uh, if we had a place here, then instead of us t- keeping the money in L.A., the people from L.A. would be coming to Austin and spending the money at hotels and uh, uh, restaurants, et cetera, like like that. Well, one of the city council members, George Humphreys, he said, he goes, I've been seeing Charlie play for years. He had to rehearse before. Where was he rehearsing before? And I said, in my basement. And, uh, and we yeah. started laughing and we got it. That sort of thing. I said, yeah, in my basement, that's where we rehearsed yeah. because there was no place. And another right. thing, as you know, Jason, as you've known me, I've always been, I've always been the nice guy and the, and the good cop. And when we first opened the arc, I had musicians telling me that I was a jerk, that that's not how you do it, that you don't charge by the hour. You know, you, you, you know what I mean? And it's like, I was a, I was a bad guy for, you know, selling out or whatever. And it was like, you know, that's yeah. not, that's not what it's about. They didn't know they, they didn't know how wrong they had it. They didn't know. Yeah. yeah they, if they, you they just only, didn't know. If you only know. need a room for a couple hours, I mean, okay, well I can, okay. If I'm doing it wrong, I can sell you a lockout where you have your yeah. own, own room all the time. Which which we did with like the meat puppets. They yeah, were in there exactly. and, the, and the butthole surfers. Each yes, one of them, they were exactly. in there for at least a year. Well, you and know. you also had the idea, I thought it was cool for, you know, bands, if they were busy enough, they could have a locker there. So their right. gear would be there all the time. All the time. Whether they had a locked out rehearsal room, like a, their personal yeah. studio, like like Charlie did, the, the buttholes, like you said, as well as, uh, you know, and, and Jared and them had the studio there for a while, which is. That yeah, was cool. You know, the studio was good. We did yeah, some work it, there. Yeah. So, so for for people that are listening to this podcast that aren't necessarily Austin centric or are are not real familiar with Austin, uh, we should tell them that the the Ark is was sort of this hotbed. It was where it was obviously we've stated it was a very professional environment, uh, very well executed. And uh, for for people listening, the band the Ark Angels uh, took their name from from the right. Ark. And Thank so, you, Charlie. Yeah, it's Charlie Sexton. And you've mentioned a few names. Just give us a quick little laundry list of people that were your regular clients so that people that aren't familiar have a sense of just, you know, the kind of talent that was always in and out of that building. And again, it was again, it was 89 to 99 that all this was happening. So so really 89 is when we in the fall of 89 is when we did the construction and then we opened South by Southwest of 90 to South by Southwest of 99. So uh, that was basically when we were open. But we it was sort of divided into two halves. We had these three professional, really nice rooms and we had these other rooms that that were were a little more low end. So we we catered to the name acts, which we had, the, the record company bands, which the, our mains one were probably the Thunderbirds, 
with uh, Jimmy Vaughn, who had split from Thunder Rouge, but he was in there. Charlie Sexton, Doug Somm, Joe Ely, uh, the Butthole Surfers, the Meat Puppets, et cetera. But then we also had uh, lots of bands, uh, as you were saying, like the Contradicts and bands that, you know, could come in and could be, uh, and, and could be go and get a cup of coffee or, or whatever and run into Doug Somm or whatever. And a good example would be, with, there was a baby band at the time, just moved in from uh, Idaho, Reckless Kelly, who uh, who had a, one of our special deals in the daytime in the little room, um, you know, room six. And if if the big room, room two was open, I'd put him in there, you know, because it was, you know, give him a, a you know, professional thing because I like the guys. And one time uh, Kyle Ellison, who was in the Meat Puppets, comes out of room three uh, saying if I knew any, uh, if I knew a, a a sort of a psychedelic country fiddle player. I go, well, Cody Braun's next door. We know that studio was hooked up to both two and three. And next thing you know, Cody Braun at 19 or 20 years old was on a meat puppet uh, uh, record, you know, just like that, you know, so it was things like that happen all the time or not all the time, but they did happen. That's kind of uh, a, that's kind of those, one of those magic moments. And that's why, that's why I really believe that uh, the arc was uh, like a hub and a hangout and yeah. you could meet, you could meet, uh, you could meet, you'd be walking, you'd be rubbing elbows with, uh, you know, the members of the alarm, uh, the cult. Uh, I remember running into Taylor Hawkins there during South by he was in town working for working with someone. This is before he was in the Foo Fighters. Uh, I remember. John Paul Jones, all kinds of stuff, crazy. Yeah, I mean your 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 list, your shopping list would be bigger than mine. But uh, I mean, I, I I was there with almost every band I've ever been in, uh, right. at least at least for uh, six months or six days. And uh, you know, it's it's a missed thing, and a lot of people who moved here after it was gone, they don't even know about it because it was really yeah. kind it's of, this... of it's our little secret, I think. You know, is and it's but one it... of the reasons why I say you know, I, and I've been living in Austin as an adult since the mid seventies, since seventy five, and my favorite time in Austin was the nineties, and one of the reasons was because of the art, but it was also. That was it was still affordable. You know, you had the uh, uh, musicians could still live in, in uh, seven eight seven zero four, uh, yeah. and we ha- and now we had the infrastructure. We had places like the Ark. We had uh, Arista Records was here. Uh, I think Bill Hammond brought his uh, um, you know his publishing company here. So we we had yeah. the thing. So in the nineties, it was still affordable. And it was rock. We still had Steamboat and the Continental was going. Antones, Liberty Lunch. Etc. And there's all of these, all of these people that you just brought up were the reason that there was there was quite a few young artists being signed. Uh, Push Monkey is one. They worked with Bill Ham. They were on Arista. They got discovered right here and ended up doing pretty well. Uh, another one I remember uh, was Lars from Metallica coming yeah, in. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask. Yeah, yeah he signed Johnny. Signed Johnny Gowdy. He was Johnny Gowdy. Uh, yes, sir. He was doing a a, a showcase for Flores. Uh, you know, I mean, that, 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 that happened. Yeah. We were, it it was pretty cool. It's pretty fun. So you, as a, as a stones fan, did you ever have any of the stones drop in? Uh, no, though, uh, Ron Wood played, uh, at the, uh, at the, across the street at the uh, opera house and, uh, uh, Mac was living here then and we all went, went to the show, but I don't think, uh, Woody came in. 
Uh, when you say Mac, tell the people who Ian you're McClagan, talking about. I'm Ian sorry. McClagan, I'm right. That's Ian okay. McClagan, yes, who was in the faces yes. uh, with, uh, with Ron Wood. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, just so much history in that building, and I don't know the half of it. So uh, right. I mean, oh, that's what I'm trying to convey here. I mean, we could talk yeah. to Wayne for ten hours about yeah, stuff we could like talk that. About just, it. About just, arc, it, yeah. just about yeah, the art. Yeah, just about the art. Yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. And it was good. It was. It was a lot of fun. Now, uh, yeah, it was. It was fun. Tell tell it us was, a little bit. Let's talk about the Archangels real quick because yeah. it's kind of a kind of a legendary band, and it's a. I'm sh- I'm sure that just being a fly on the wall and you weren't even, you're not a fly on the wall. You were standing right there helping them. I mean, when you got double trouble from Stevie's band and you got, uh, you know, the little Doyle Bramhall, I guess you could take the word little. Doyle out too. Yeah. yeah Doyle too. too. And, yeah. and, uh, and of course, Charlie uh, Sexton and, and, uh, we'll, we should talk about Will, his brother, Will Sexton Will, as well, because you Charlie. were, you were helping. Well, that's how I, that's how I got, uh, that's how the arc really came about would be through Charlie. And that's how I, uh, um, well, I guess for my, for me in the music business goes back to the continental club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, when I, I was a talent buyer, we opened the continental club. It was a dive bar. It was like a, a I think a speed bar, whatever. Those two or three blocks of, of South Congress at that time was skid row. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, and it, it was literally and we whores, took it over. literally whores and drunks, whores and drunks. You could and, score, and, and, you and could score was. anything you want. And, and right uh, there. we yeah. took it over. We took it over. Uh, and I, in fact, I remember those, those day, those day drinkers. I remember them telling me there's, you know, they're sitting there go, you think you own this club? We own it. You'll never get rid of us. And we got rid of them with punk rock sound checks, you know, you, yeah. you bring the big boys in or, or you know, the skunks and they were gone. But, yeah. uh, but it started with that. I was booking that and uh, um, booking the Continental Club. And in the summer of 1980, uh, every Tuesday night, W.C. Clark uh, was playing. And uh, wow. uh, I think Austin yeah, legend, Austin, Austin legend. legend. Yep. And yep. Uh, 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 Speedy Sparks was on pace at that summer. Mm-hmm. And his girlfriend at the time was Kay Sexton. And she had these two little boys. In fact, Speedy is the one who got the boys into the music. Uh, wow. And anyway, they came in, uh, it was the summertime and they are, they're both born in August. So they were, they were nine and uh, 11 going on 10 and 12. So when I first booked them in there, they were nine and 11 playing, Will played bass and Charlie played guitar uh, with them. They do two or three songs a set. Uh, and that's, that's how I met them. And when Charlie was playing, Man. a lot of people, they think that, I discovered Charlie and that's the first thing. He was a pro. He'd already been playing at 11 yeah. years old. He'd been playing Armadillo and he'd been playing, you know, this and that. Didn't they know? call him, didn't they call him little Charlie? Little and weren't Charlie. They, call, they weren't they calling Stevie, little Stevie, little Stevie. It yeah. was little Charlie. He, the, and the, in the band, he, for his first band was little Charlie and the eager beaver boys. That's exactly right. I remember yeah. that. Wow. And, that, and I became, and I was their booking agent when the uh, continental club and we, when we uh, went under because of uh, mismanagement. Well, yeah. <laughs> In the liberty that happens. Uh, <laughs> and I went to work at Rock Arts and uh, uh, I, I was uh, Charlie's uh, booking agent, little Charlie Beaver Boys, which is how I became a tour manager because he was only, at that time, he was 14 and the other two guys were drinking and doing drugs. And, you know, I remember oh, booking him and yeah. bo- shocking. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, Char- Charlie, <laughs> Charlie was playing, playing Dallas. I called the club. How did it go? And the guy goes, well, um, you know, it was okay, but they were late and the, the drummer was drunk or whatever, you know, or the bass player was whatever it was. And I asked Charlie how it went. He goes, it was great. I, I got to drive, drive all home all night. You know, he was this 14 old guy. So I started going to the gigs to make sure that it was all right and stuff and ended up, uh, you know, it ended up, it ended up happening. That's like, that's child slavery. When you, when you're so wasted, you make the 14 year old drive all the way home. Like, <laughs> and you know, of course, Texas is, is the wild west. Oh my God. Been. Yeah. They could have never had any problem with Charlie and Will being in bars. Right. Uh, the, the only time, the only time that we had a problem with Charlie and as ironic, it was, uh, the net his the last gig that he'd be 20 years old, uh, the, the next gig would be his birthday. And we were in, in, uh, Delaware and, uh, um, I guess, uh, playing a, a, a club and the, uh, a, a rival, a rival club owner dropped a dime on him that there's this teenager, uh, uh, uh underage guy. And so the, everyone was there and they, and, the, and the, they said that, uh, uh, Charlie, the, the compromise was Charlie could only, he could, he had to stay on the tour bus he could come in and play the show. And that's the only time he can be in. And they're, they're going on. And I go, well, what about the guitar tech, Jeff Tweedy? You know, he's 19. And that just <laughs> shut it down. That was it. I go, they go, he's got to tune the guitars outside. I go, he can't do that. You can't tune the guitars outside. No, you, you can't know? tune a guitar outside. <laughs> you got to acclimate it. Yada, unless yada, you're already outside, right? Yeah, unless you're already outside. But I mean, yeah, yeah. for the people listening, yeah, you have to have the the car, your guitar has to acclimate in whatever temperature it is. You can't bring bring it out in a in hot or that, cold, into warm or, or or whatever. That's right. Uh, but that's what about right. Jeff Tweedy? You know, <clears throat> wow. And it's the Jeff Tweedy, our Jeff Tweedy, not the Wilco Jeff Tweedy. Thank well, of course. Oh yeah, the me. Austin Jeff Tweedy, the legendary. Uh, <laughs> Secret weapon guitar secret tech. Weapon. Yeah, the secret right. weapon guitar tech who's been Who guitar tech. you in Watchtower. That's right. Here's yeah. a here's a Jeff Tweedy uh, revamp. Here, Jeff Tweedy, I met when he was about fourteen or fifteen years old, and I was working at Pantera's Pizza up on North Lamar near Runberg, right? And I was living up there. And I meet all these kids in my neighborhood because I lived on Runberg and Tweedy lived right down the street and all these other kids, they were all going to Lanier High School, right, right there. And they'd they'd come into Pantera's and I'd be like, hey, man, what's up? And they were all Watchtower fans, you know, they get giddy and everything. And, and I met Tweedy and I thought he was the most interesting kid. And then when I realized he's one of these kids that you know, got his GED in like eighth grade or something because he could take a TV set and make a Maserati out of it. I was like, I need you to meet Billy White, guitar player for Watchtower. And he's like, okay, whatever. And so we, I introduced them and boom, all of us, overnight, Tweedy was overnight. a guitar tech. Overnight, overnight, he was a guitar tech. His first boss was Billy White in Watchtower. White. And from then on, it was like, now he's like a god. Yeah, he's, yeah, I was working with uh, Roger Waters, did Bruce Springsteen, Prince, uh, yeah, M- MCA from the Beasties. Yeah. Keep now, going. Worked for Axel for a week till he yeah. got the call from Little Steven, you know, right. whatever. And Charlie got him that gig, I think. 
the story. Yeah, yeah. Charlie got Charlie got him the uh, got this, him a little Stephen gig for sure. Tell me, I'm laughing. I just want to tell the story, even though you guys may have heard it or not. Supposedly, little Stephen and Charlie Sexton are sitting at a table in Guero's, famous Mexican food restaurant, right there on South Congress in South Austin. Blah blah blah. And and little Steven's got his head in his hands. He's going, man, I just see a cartoon strip of the whole thing. <laughs> little Steven going, man, Charlie, man, I, I, I hate my guitar tech. I hate, I, I totally want to go into the Silvio voice, but I'll, uh -huh. I'll refrain. I hate my guitar tech. Well, man, I just need somebody who's mellow, who just doesn't fuck around, who's just always on time. And, and Charlie's like, well, I got your guy. His name's Jeff Tweedy. Here's his number right here. Rest is history. Yeah, we were talking about Tweedy the other day because we had uh, we had Jimmy Ashurst on the podcast and uh, Jimmy actually brought up your name, Wayne. Um, we were talking about uh, Tweedy went to work for Craig Ross, who Craig was playing, Ross. Yeah. And uh, and we were talking about that because uh, Jimmy is friends. Oh, actually, Jimmy was in a band with Craig Ross called the Broken Homes. Broken band. Homes. Yeah. He, right. he, I knew Wayne would know all about yeah, we know that. Fact. Yeah. Uh, Craig Ross was sitting in my living room. I think it was six a.m. one one early one morning or late one night, and he asked, uh, uh, "Where's what's, whatever happened to Jeff Tweedy?" And I said, uh, "We'll call him up." No, we can't call him. It's our goal. He'll be up. He'll be up. And we called him, and Craig hired him right there. He goes, yeah. "I'm," you know, because he, he had he was in uh, just starting Lenny Kravitz and wanted Jeff Tweedy. Yeah. Yeah. How did he know? How did he know about Jeff Tweedy? How did he, he know about him? Jeff Tweedy? Was the uh, the Broken Homes and and Will and Charlie uh, uh, wow. shared the same A and R guy, Michael Goldstone. Okay, and and so we, and we were all buddies. That's so why I know Jimmy. In fact, uh, Jimmy and Craig are 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 the the surviving members of the Broken Homes. The Broken Homes yeah. were a killer way before their time. Um, that's uh, what legend has. That's what yeah, legend they were, told. I mean, that's what they the were way on. cool. And, uh, uh, and we all became friends cause we, you know, there, I think their album came out first before Charlotte, but we were all in LA recording and, you know, we were just all buddies and hung out and, yeah. you know, we're, uh, sort of, uh, you know, birds of a feather. Yeah. Well, Jimmy yeah. Ashurst was our, our, our last episode or episode yeah. before last. Yeah, he, I can't, he did I can't well keep up this time. Yeah. yeah, he 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 must have done he must have done all right. Yeah, I, I, I think I think did well. I think he showed up in a in a an Aston Martin to pick up <laughs> Metal David. To yeah, he did. He picked up that Metal David and Aston Martin to go to go to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah we, we were going out to the racetrack because Jimmy's a big motorsports fan, and, uh, and and he happened to be in town. Uh, it was in September, October, and there was one of the one of the car races. It wasn't the big one. It wasn't Formula One. I don't know anything about motorsports. Well, they have NASCAR there also, so it could have been. Yeah, that. it wasn't NASCAR either. It was some. I could tell the cars were very European looking. And uh, for Jimmy, F1, how did we, if it wasn't yeah, F1, it was it, it was it was like the, oh, it was the Le Mans. That's oh, Le Mans. okay, all right, yeah. All right. And uh, Jimmy texted me and told me he was going to be in town because he was uh, recording some music with Hunt Sales. Mm. And I said, well, it so, just so happens that uh, I've got some tickets to this to the racetrack. If you want to go, I know you're a motorsports guy. And he's like, oh, my God, yeah. And I said, well, come pick me up. And he shows up at my house in an Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, yeah he we did had a great time. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun.
So besides besides the arc, um, uh, were you also the talent buyer at one point for the back room? Yeah, I was. I was the talent buyer there from about I would say eighty. It's either eighty, late eighty, early eighty-one to about eighty-six. And uh, uh, when I when I started there, um, because I, I was because of the Continental Club and the owner Ronnie Rourke was friends with the uh, Roddy and Roger one night and those guys and uh, um, I he hired me and uh, it was. They hadn't built a, the second half yet. In fact, they had a, a, just a, a, um, it was one half. The music room was in the front and the games were in the back. Uh, and it was, uh, and, and he didn't, he wasn't doing road shows or anything. Uh, I sort of started that and handed it off to Jim Ramsey, who's one who, who sort of turned it in to what it was. But, uh, but I did book some bands in there. I booked uh, uh, the Unforgiven and, and I booked the true believers in there and uh, uh, started. Uh, uh, in fact, it was how I got my uh, the gig with Charlie was uh, as I wanted to be his booking agent. Uh, with Charlie Sexton, the little eager beaver boys. Now, the two the two guys I'd mentioned earlier, uh, Mudcat and Alex, who who would be drinking and couldn't drive, et cetera. They didn't want me as the booking agent because they they didn't want to lose control, which is what happened. Yeah. They didn't want me and Charlie did. And we, uh, uh, we went to lunch or whatever. And, and I gave my pitch and, and as they dropped me off at my house, Charlie said that, uh, uh, they don't have a gig on Saturday night. If, uh, if I could get them a gig on Saturday night, I'd be, I could have their gig as their booking agent. And when I went in, uh, phone machines were brand new. I just bought, a, I just had a phone machine and they're brand new. And I listened, turned on the machine and there was a band, uh, it was John Reed, not John X Reed, but another John Reed. There's two John Reeds at the time, and I forget his band, but he said they I had him booked on Saturday night and he left a message that he had a chance to do three nights in Corpus Christi. Can he get out of the Saturday night gig? And I go, I called him back yet, called Charlie and uh had the gig, booked him in there, booked Charlie in there on Saturday night, and that's how I got Charlie. And that's sort of the beginning of the a little bit of the transformation of the back room and because it was more cover bands. And it, it hadn't gone the hard, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a, a hip place uh, that it became, if you could call it hip. Tell us yeah. a little bit about, tell us, a, that's a between 80 and 86. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of things happening. I mean, I had just moved to town and I can't, re I don't recall the first time we actually met Wayne and you, your well, memory might be better my, than mine my, at this well, point. Well, we met. I booked you, though I wasn't able, this would be 1985, I wasn't able to go to the show, but I did a a uh, uh, a battle of the bands, me and Margaret Steam, Mosier at Steamboat. Steamboat. Yeah, at and, Steamboat. Billy, and I, Billy Gibbons was one of the judges. He was one of the judges, yeah. Gretchen Barber. Yeah. Uh, and because I, I, I've always been a fan, and so I was, I knew Watchtower, if we wanted to do, we wanted to do a battle of the bands with metal bands. And I said, you know, uh, I said, well, you got to have Watchtower, well, let me stop. One. Let me stop you right there. It's kind of interesting. We're talking about 1985, and when you think 80, was it 85? January, it was January of 85. It was 85. I yeah. don't remember. Anyway, it could, anyway, it'd be 84, 85, because I, I know that's when I was in in L.A. Uh, okay. doing the record with Charlie, so I wasn't okay. there. Okay. So it'd be it could be fall or spring of 84, so 85. When you think about what was metal in Austin in 1985. Yeah, yeah. There's not much. Not, yeah. much. not much. It's um, not much. It was. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, trip triple X, wasn't it? And yeah, I, uh, I, 
Um, uh, I can't, he, uh, um, can't, can't remember. It's David Spann's band. That David was Spann X, was David one Spann. band. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, it was somebody oh, Lance, else. Lance Keltner. Oh, that's right. That's right. He had a that's band. Right. Yeah. He had a band. They might've been in the same band. I can't remember. But then there's, there, there, there's like four bands, two or what I would call, uh, sort of the hip metal, which is why I brought y'all in. And the other one, they started with an M. Um, huh. Uh, but anyway, it was, it was a uh, triple X. I can't, I don't, there's four I bands. Don't, I don't know that, that they were metal, the other bands. I don't know that they yeah, were well, metal. I, yeah, they, they, they probably weren't, but that was what yeah. I, it's, it's what we knew. I mean, but, by, we by, but they were playing the back room at the time. But so, that's why I brought the, y'all in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the standard of what was metal in 1984-85 was probably not even what Watchtower was in. They were in a different room. It might have said metal on the sign, but they were in a different room than we were. And, you know, it's arguable if even Watchtower is even metal anyway, because it was so uh, esoteric. But Watchtower had you and Billy White. And that was... uh, Well, you... uh, that, that was that was pretty cool. Whatever it was, pretty cool. it was cool. Was That's pretty, pretty cool. cool. I, I I have to give honorable mention to the craziest rhythm section ever yeah. because it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been Watch Hour without those guys. Right. So that that said my but, piece, and that would be honorable mentions to Rick Kolaluka on drums and Doug Keezer on bass. Right, right. I so apologize so, so, for not mentioning, no, but y'all had something good, going. Yeah. Y'all had something going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the the uh, the cool the cool thing about you being a talent buyer for these legendary and now somewhat long gone venues and and things, and leading you into uh, things like like uh, just the things that you've been doing for the past I I want to say ten years as a tour manager for uh, CCR as well yeah. as other people. Um, yeah, I like that. Go ahead. I was going to say, I like doing the tour managing. That was, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Who all of you tour managed for? Well, yeah, I, that's uh, I was for going. the last, I guess the last 15 years until COVID was Creedence Clearwater Revisited, which was Stu Cook and uh, um, uh, Cosmo, because, you know, they had the falling out with John Fogarty, but we did all the Creedence songs. But I've also, uh, I guess the first one was Charlie Sexton. You know, I was his booking agent. And as, as I said, I went to, to uh, uh you know, I became his tour managing just to keep keep the gigs going, you know, because sure. people weren't going to book him because it wasn't it wasn't professional. And we got a professional and it, it was real quick. Uh, people, L.A. got hit to Charlie and that was through Kathy Valentine and oh, the Go-Go's. Cool. Yeah. The Go-Go's came came to town and we all knew Kathy. I booked Kathy in the Continental Club. Uh, uh, I, I knew her from the Violators. Uh like that would be saying that Watchtower wasn't metal would be like uh, saying Watchtower was metal would be like saying the skunks was punk, you know? Yeah. 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 Okay. You know, you know that's I mean? fair. Yeah. That's yeah, fair. It, it that's was, fair. but that was the categories y'all were in. Well, and that but, was the, sta- it was the standard. It's like, that was you, the standard. You, had, you had, if someone wanted to, to put you somewhere and they had to, they were, it was their job yeah, to yeah. put you somewhere. That's where you, that's where you ended up. Yeah, it's true. But, and I want to say y'all did win the battle of the bands. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Billy Gibbons. Thank you, Billy Gibbons. And, Mar- and Margaret yeah. Moser. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, um, uh, uh, Kathy Valentine was in the violators with Jesse Sublin of the skunks. And, you know, mm-hmm. and then she moved to LA and had the, uh, uh, the text tones and I'd book him in the continental club. And so I want to pa- her- pause you for a second. Kathy lives in, not that it doesn't matter where she lives, but she lives here, right? She lives here. She, she was born and raised in Austin. And yeah. my next 
question is, do you think you can help us get her on the Talk Louder podcast? Uh, I'll ask. I'll, okay. I'll tell her I've been, I'll say I've been okay. shouting her out. Uh, okay. She should, she would be a good guest because she's got oh, oh, she, uh, stories for days. Read her book. Read oh my her God. Book. It's, stories it's for great. days. Yeah. I interviewed her once for, uh, for Austin Monthly Magazine and yeah, she had a bunch of stories. I, I actually interviewed Charlie Sexton for the same magazine, but yeah, Sweet. since we're on the subject. Yeah. But go ahead, Wayne. Yeah. Who else have you so, tour managed? Well, uh, I, I was going to, I just want to finish about how the Go-Go's had came to, they played the Frank Irwin Center. And uh, Charlie and the little eager beaver, Charlie Sex and Eager Beaver Boys are playing Steamboat, and she brought the Go Go's uh, into after into the Steamboat to see Charlie because you know, we're all friends. And then yeah. they went back to LA just talking about this young, hot uh, rockabilly guitar player. And that's when the word came out. Next thing you know, we had record companies coming down, and and uh, um, uh, luckily for me, I knew Tim Neese who worked for the Go Go's management company, Frontline, and he he uh, managed Charlie. I became Charlie's. Uh, 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 tour manager. I also I've tour managed since Charlie. I've tour managed. Uh, I tour managed Ian Moore, who you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I tour managed Eric Johnson when he had his uh, uh, big hit. Yeah. In fact, I tour managed Eric Johnson for ten years, though there's only maybe two or three tours in those ten years because he'd mm -hmm. take a while to do an album and the tour. Mm -hmm. But he did play Texas quite a bit, and I I I was sort of a sub for Jimmy Vaughn when uh, he needed a tour manager. But for the main last 14 years, it was Creedence Clearwater. But another one I did was, was Don Walzer, who I, oh, who yeah. I really liked. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a good one. Yeah, another Austin yeah. legend, kind of Boy, a funny, legend. Yeah, he was a treasure, God. man. What a, yeah. he, was a, he was an Austin treasure. Yeah. And now I'm doing Ray Wiley Hubbard, uh, uh, which is a good one. Yeah, guess, let's you know, let's he, let our listeners who we have more of like a heavy metal rock. Uh, I mean, people people watch and listen to to the Talk Louder podcast just because they they want to see a, a circus uh, between me and Dave. Totally nerd out on just anything <laughs> that we want to nerd out on, and this is what we're nerding out on today. For there, for listeners, let's remind each other, the three of us in this room, how many kick ass songs Ray Wiley Hubbard has written. He's still writing them. Yeah. To, 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 <laughs> Ray Wiley Hubbard is one of the original cosmic cowboys. Yeah. He was, uh, um, he was, and he, and he had, he was the, uh, he had a band when I was in college. Uh, I saw his band. He had a band called Ray Wiley Hubbard and the Cowboy Twinkies. And they were the first country band I saw do rock. They did, they did communication breakdown. Oh, uh, man. And, and, and he became famous. But he wrote the song uh, Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, that Jerry Jeff Walker put on Via Trilingua uh, with the uh, Los Gonzo Band, which these are the Cosmic Cowboys. And that in 1973, that was the record that every in, in the uh, alternative uh, country or whatever that everyone had when I was in college, everyone had that record. It was a huge record. And uh, not only does he did he record uh, uh, Ray Wiley's song, but he gives him a shout out. Actually, it was Bob Livingston, the bass player, to give the shout out to Ray Wiley Hubbard, wherever you are or whatever. Uh, but anyway, he's been writing songs and does a lot of good songs. He's and, very well uh, respected, yes. He, he's a musician's musician. Yeah. Uh, like a lot of the Austin uh, musicians are. Uh, two of his biggest fans are uh, uh, Ringo Starr and Joe Walsh. In fact, one of Ray's raps when he does the song, his new album, he says he's got a, a Beatle, 
an eagle and a black crow on his uh, record, <laughs> a beetle and eagle. But uh, you know, a lot of people are, are fans of his, and he's uh, out doing it. In fact, uh, give a shout out. Next weekend's his birthday weekend, where he's playing uh, Green Hall on Friday, uh, the twelfth and the thirteenth at Paramount. It's his seventy uh, fifth birthday. He's still doing it, but he was one of the original wow. Cowboys, wow. which wow, was before, awesome. as he said, before Willie came to the Armadillo and uh, the the rednecks and the hippies got together. The, uh, this Cosmic Cowboy movement with uh, uh, B.W. Stevenson, Michael, Martin Murphy, Ray White Hubbard. They all went to high school together in uh, Oak Cliff. They were like the country thing. And then the South Oak Cliff High was uh, Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie and Denny Friedman uh, and Paul Ray. So it was sort of a bluesy country thing in South, South Oak Cliff. So something was going on in Dallas. And, of course, they all moved yeah. to Austin. Yeah, all, I feel yeah. like you mix all that up and throw it in Austin. It's gonna, it's gonna rock. Yeah, it's gonna it's rock. Gonna, yeah, it's gonna, gonna be like a little bit of country and blues mixed with some like you know dirty rock and roll to create this this weird thing. I think that the Cosmic Cowboy like moniker, that sort of like label, is really cool and extends to from psychedelic through country all the way yeah. to hard rock. And and uh, you know, dare I mention Rocky Erickson? And his 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 like roots in Austin, and and his influence probably on all of those, and and probably did gigs with the Cobras, which had the had uh, Vaughns and 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 oh my God, but, I mean, did I just the Cobras open up had and, the Cobras had Stevie Ray on did right. Freeman Stevie Ray on guitar and had Alex Snapier, who's in char both Charlie and Will's band. May he rest in peace. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they that all came from Oak Cliff. Yeah, this is this is huge. This is really huge. I mean, if anyone were to just like open a dumb Wikipedia page about Austin music and click on some of the names that we're dropping here, a rabbit hole would open the size of the Grand Canyon. Just yeah. as far as what what you should probably know about history of Austin, I wonder if anyone cares. Sometimes I know I uh, do because I love this kind of shit. Yeah. So. I think I think what we're covering here today, especially for our listeners who aren't familiar with Austin so much, is, you know, I think Austin has an international reputation as what oh, they yeah. call it the live music capital of the world. And what we're hearing here today with Wayne is uh, ground zero for a lot of that reputation. A lot of the people that Wayne has worked with and associated with and helped launch careers and everything, that was sort of, at least in my opinion, sort of the genesis of what gave rise to that moniker, the live music capital of the world. Cause I don't know that there was a whole lot going on prior to that. And if it was, it wasn't this sort of cohesive driving force that it became recognized as and sort of put Austin on the map. So we're, we're really down in the roots today when you're talking about, you know, the, the fabulous Thunderbirds and you going back to the Cobras and stuff like that. Um, highly responsible for putting Austin on the map as the live music capital of the world. I want to jump in, but I don't want to, I guess I'm interrupting Wayne because Wayne could probably weigh in here a little bit is personally, I don't really like that title, the live music capital of the world prior to Austin using that title. Uh, it, cause it just sounds like a t-shirt bumper sticker to me. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. really hold water in my opinion, because you got New Orleans, you got Chicago, keep going. Right. You right, know what right. I mean? They, I, they've been I doing agree. it th their yeah. entire, since there was one seedling popping up. They, they've been the, yeah, we didn't come up with that. No, it was just, I don't know. <laughs> Right, that, right. That was no. definitely a chamber of commerce. Exactly. Big time. Exactly, yeah. But it, exactly. but I but, think but we did, we, we had, we had our, 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 our spot. 
We had oh, our yeah. spot. And I, I think, think that we'll, David's on to something about the culture. About yeah, yeah. about and how it does fit into the culture. And yeah, I, don't, I, think, I don't. I don't think we called it that ourselves. It's something that yeah, sort of yeah. came to us and was probably, as Wayne said, created Amen. by the Chamber of Commerce. But that's exactly it right. wouldn't have been justified if the talent pool wasn't here. And that's, that's what I'm exactly trying to right. get right. at. Here, what I'm here, getting at right is up. there was a, a Wayne touched on it earlier. Rent was cheap. Everybody owned a guitar. There was this this music scene that was sort of germinating, and then it kind of blossomed into. <laughs> this thing that we're talking about today and, and Wayne was in on, you know, the ground level of a lot of that stuff. And, and I think another thing that what made Austin different is we had the synergy. We, we weren't, uh, our music was, was integrated. You know, it wasn't that segregated, like the thing about the arc, you could come in and, uh, you know, have all different kinds of bands playing. And that's what, sort of what I did when I, with my first talent buying gig was at the continental club is I, we all, I had all different, types of like all different types of music when we opened we opened in a uh september of 1979 and our grand opening was with kinky friedman and then the the show that the two shows in a row that sort of put us on the map real quick was uh i had booked because i was friends i mentioned jesse Subble. i was i because i was a fan i went and saw the skunks and the violators at raul's and so i booked wow. the skunks in the continental club and it was sort of ironic because maybe when i there was maybe a little bit segregated because his fans were giving him grief. Why are you going to play the Continental Club? This dive, and then my partners who were from the the uh, the redneck, you know, the you know, from the Willie Nelson uh, thing, was what are you doing putting this punk band in? Right. Which uh, and then then Jesse calls me, and this is what changed everything. Jesse calls me about a week before uh, the gig. It was a Thursday night that they have a chance to open for Joe Ely, who's opening for The Clash at the Armadillo. Legend, and, uh, legend, explosive, legend. Add, they, add explosions they, they, to this. And, and I said, and I said, no problem. We'll get an opening band. You you open and, and come. And, and pe so many people gave him grief about them playing there. My guys did that when, uh, um, after the show at the Armadillo, when I was coming to the Continental Club, because I, I was hanging out, you know, and everything. And I was coming, I was worried. Is anyone even going to be there? And when I was coming from the Armadillo up Congress and there was a line outside the Continental Club yeah. and Joe Ely, we have to give that to Joe. Joe brought the clash and everyone because the skunks, the opening band is playing. Joe brought everyone. And by the end of the night, you had oh Joe Ely and, and, and Jimmy Vaughn and uh, and the clash playing with the, the skunks. And after that, that was in the middle of October. And then I had booked for Halloween because I was friends with Freddie Kirch who used to be the uh, the drummer for B.W. Stevenson and Jerry Jeff Walker, who had a band called The Explosives, who were backing up Rocky Erickson. And I had them on Halloween. And that one-two punch, it was just like, you know, my guy said, book whatever you want. Do so you just, mentioned the, you just mentioned, you know, uh, UK punk legends, The Clash, Rocky Erickson, psychedelic, almost like a gateway to, heavy, to heavy metal, to uh, The Dunk. Skunks, to... Joe Ely, who's like singer-songwriter on the country rock alternative, just singer-songwriter vibe from Lubbock, the Lubbock thing. Right. And, you, and, and Jimmy Vaughn, all in one sentence, Wayne. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the beauty of 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 Austin, at least that's the back, beauty of Austin. Back, back in those days. Uh, I remember going to see Don Walzer and there would be punk rockers with mohawks. And Don Walzer, for people that don't know, was a yodeling cowboy. I mean, yeah. his whole thing <laughs> was, was a yodeling. Yodeling. 
He was a yodeler. He's a yodeler and he wore this big hat and uh, he, he sat on a bar stool and he played and it was very roots and old school. And he had punk rockers in his crowd. Yeah, we yeah. opened for, we went on tour with Butthole Surfers. That's amazing. <laughs> that's how crazy. See, that's the beauty of it, you know? That's the beauty of it. That's yeah. Austin. And I think we're, we're a little bit uh, unique in that aspect, I think. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit of, uh, more about Charlie Sexton, because I remember I'm from San Antonio originally. And uh-huh. if, if memory serves me correctly, so is he. Yeah, they were him uh, and Will were born there. Yeah. And uh, I he didn't come on my radar until MTV uh, beat So Lonely. Right. And, and so, he's all of uh, when that came out, he was he was 16 when he recorded that and 17 when it came out. So he's still a teenager when that came out. Are now. you working with him at that? Yeah, point? I was working with him. That's okay. I, I, I was working with him. then. So so. So when that he I remember the video on MTV, I thought he looked really cool. I was like, who is this guy? He's got a he's got a cool look and a cool vibe going. And they were sort of grooming him as sort of a heartthrob sort of kind of teen idol type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, he's done very well for himself. um, But but in your opinion, why did the grooming not turn him into why why didn't he follow that path or why wasn't why didn't he become known as as that instead of what he's become known as today which is you know world class guitar player who plays with the Stones and Dylan and David Bowie because because that's what he is he's a uh, uh, I guess an example I don't want to step on anyone's toes but Duran Duran uh, called Charlie. Uh, when their their guitar player had had quit, and they called Charlie, wanting him to be in the band, uh, and he That's turned huge. Him, yeah, he turned him down. I'm, I was ready to go. I was like, yeah, yeah. let's go be with Duran Duran. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we had, they got us tickets to the show in Austin. It was all young girls, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was like, but Charlie wanted to do. He didn't, you know. He didn't want to do that. You know, he had his own career. He wanted to do, and uh, um, you know, and he just went a different direction. Yeah, I, I wanted to hear it from you because I think a lot of people, and th- and this happens a lot of times. People, their first impression is what they either hear on the radio or, or especially back in those days, see on MTV, and that sort of uh, almost pigeonholes that person. And and a lot of times, what people don't understand is it's a record company or or somebody that's grooming this person to fit this image to to sell yeah. records, and it may not be what the person truly wants to do. Well, I, on, on Charlie, that was what he truly wanted to do, but he was sixteen and seventeen yeah. by the time he was by the time he was uh, uh, eighteen. Like when he was in the uh, Ark, well, I mean the Archangels. When he was in the Archangels, he was twenty one years old. Yeah. You know, now he's an old pro. He's been doing it for ten years. So the record company would have loved. Uh, to have him. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt good. you. He's an old pro at the age of 21. At the Carry age of 21. On. Yeah. 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 At age of yeah. 21. And Doyle was too. Uh, yeah. Doyle yeah. played with the T-Birds. So you had these yeah. guys that were 21 years old playing with the rhythm section, uh, Tommy and Whipper. But that was when he did, he, you know, he didn't want to, you know, uh, you know, he didn't want to cut, keep going on that. Now, the record company might have liked him to keep doing that, but he yeah. he, he grew up. You know, he wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, he grew up. Right. Do you good, feel good, like the good point? He, do you he feel was, like the I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you feel like the Archangels was <clears throat> just uh, something until uh, uh, until the next thing that he wanted to do? I mean, he did grow up and he's in the Archangels. Yeah. I guess my question, let me refine it. Uh I feel like he was extremely in a great 
place uh, as a performer and a songwriter when he's in the Archangels? Do you feel like that's uh, his 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 happy? Do you think he's yes. happy writing that kind of a right. rock and roll song? And I think he he's gone on from that. Now the, the I think, uh, okay the Archangels yeah. broke up because of a. a Doyle's drug problem, which he's got clean and sober and everything, and yeah. and they, they went different ways. But yeah, now he's he's an adult and and, and doing things. But getting back to when he was, you know, when he was a teenager, when he was 15 years old, he was recording with Ron Wood, the Rolling Stones, yeah. and I was with him when he met Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan came to one of those recording sessions, and Charlie was 15 years old. When he was 15 years old, he recorded on a. Uh, Don Henley's Building the Perfect Beast uh, album. He was on uh, 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 Man with was it? I'm getting my I get a Man with a Mission. He's on one of those songs. He was 15 years old and recording, so he had the chops. You know, right. he had it. He could uh, he could rap. How, where he learned all this, I don't know. Well, but I think that I think that he's I think that he's just one of. The, I think his brother yeah. Will is that talented too. It's it's just Will's in, that talented. I call it the boy. In, I called the boy named Sue theory where they were given this talent because they, they had a, a little bit of a hard upbringing. Um, you know, their, uh, their parents, all their parents are beautiful people, but they were young and had the children young. And, and yeah. I think they were given this gift. And did it, it, but, if we, if we play a game call, is it true? And we don't have to go into any details or living arrangements or anything like that, but let's play the game. Now's the time on the talk letter podcast for, is it true? <laughs> Hi, Wayne. I'm Jason. I'm your host of Is It True? Is it true that you may have had a hand in the raising of the Sexton boys? Well, I I go, yes and no. I did the best I could. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to keep the drug and drink away from them as best yeah, as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, that, now, Charlie was pretty was, – was, uh, he was pretty focused. Now, Will was wild. He was just a wild child. Uh but uh, they were both very talented. And um, now Charlie, when I started working with him at, at the age of 14, he already had his own apartment and such, but Will did live with me. And uh, mm. um, uh, in fact, that's when I realized when I sort of cleaned up my act when I was working with these young boys that I knew that I yeah. shouldn't be, you know, uh, uh, doing the things that I was doing uh, around them. But uh, sure. uh, it was just, it was part of the gig, I guess. Well, especially yeah. if you're going to, this is your career too, Wayne. Right. This is your yeah. career. This is their yeah. life. This is your career. This, so that but, is that is your life. I, so. I can remember on Will's 16th birthday, on Will's 16th birthday, we're flying to LA. You know, he's got a record deal too. We're flying yeah. to LA and we're, we're sitting first class and it's his birthday. And the, uh, the, 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 uh, the flight attendant, they're called stewardesses in those days, but the yeah. flight attendant, she was just like, you know, you know, just completely taken by will and she's bringing him drinks you see you know we're, we're already throwing 16 you know like lady help me hey, out hey yay hey, hey uh, you have to go i'll take the drink i'm old enough yeah. to drink that he's not yeah I'll of take course that. of course will would drink it you know because he was a 16 year old rocker because well, he's right, a rock and right. roll kid he's a rock yeah. and roll yeah and will yeah we got to talk about will because he could write the songs and and will was good and i think uh and will is where um I swear, going back to Jeff Tweedy, how I yeah. met Jeff Tweedy is when Will, he had his record deal and his guitar player, uh, Terry Lacaz, uh, who's from France, 
when yeah. we were coming back on a tour from Canada and we didn't know, I didn't have any clue about those days. And the tour manager was Bobby McNeely. If you remember Bobby oh, McNeely. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, back room, back, back room, room, Bobby, Bobby yeah. McNeely. Anyway, yeah. uh, Terry gets pulled out and, and uh, uh, deported back to France because he didn't have the proper uh, paperwork. Yeah, and we were doing getting, not, yeah. getting ready to do the album and Joe Ely was producing the album. So we were lucky enough to have David Grissom on the album. So we had David Grissom on the album, but we still needed a guitar player. And so what guitar player did we get? Who was the perfect match? Billy White. Billy White. So we got Billy White and Billy White. Now we're doing a show, the Billy White's first show. We're playing Liberty Lunch. And at Liberty Lunch, the uh, the, the dress room was behind the stage. You had to go on the stage to get in the dress room. And that's where the beer was. And all these, because Will's, you know, 16 years old. So all these teenagers are going back and drinking beer. And I thought had enough of these teenagers on my stage. stage the next long haired yeah, next long haired teenager I saw on the stage, I threw him off and Will comes up to me and goes, You just threw Billy White's guitar tech off the stage. And it was <laughs> Jeff Tweedy. So I get him back on and so I met Jeff Tweedy. Now the, your first meeting is your first meeting of Jeff Tweedy, you had him by the hair chucking him yeah, out the I back door. Get him out of here. I, you know, and he wasn't <laughs> even drinking the beers. No, beer. of course not. But, he never he he's never drank. So. He's never drank, yeah. but that's how I met Jeff Tweedy. But getting to Billy White and uh, and Will, so we had the record done. Now the our A and R guy who signed Charlie. This is uh, Will and the Kill, right? Will and the Kill, name of the band. Will, Will and the, the Kill. Kill. So mm -hmm. we had the record that Joe Ely produced, and who who came under budget. He came under budget. The record company didn't want him because he was on MCA and they just unbeknownst to us when we hired, I thought it was a brilliant idea having Joe Ely produce Will, the a record company there was pushing back and the reason they were pushing back because they were getting ready to drop Joe. Oh, so, conflict so of interest. It's conflict and they dro dropped Joe. So anyway, Joe made a record. We came under budget. It was all good. And now, so we have a guitar player. We have Billy White and, uh, uh, the the A&R guy, Michael Goldstone, who signed, we talked about the Broken Homes. He signed Charlie and Will. He went on to sign Pearl Jam and uh, uh, Rage Against the Machine. This guy knows his stuff. He's Huge. cool. He Huge. goes, we got to get Billy White on this record. And so we go into L.A. and do one song that's called uh, uh, No Sleep. And it became the first song on the record. And he brought in another producer because Joe was busy to do it. And you know who that producer was? No. Mike Wagner of Dokken. Oh, right. That's, yeah, yeah. That's, Except Dokken, uh, he's worked with Metallica. Right, he, yeah, uh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, a yeah. big guy. And he, that's how, or one of how the door sort of opened for Billy White into Dokken. Oh, I know there's I another, there's another story. There's a whole other Dokken. story. There's yeah, a yeah. Dokken here in the, the cassette. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's sort of a, you know, it could have happened, but I well, know, you know that what's you know what's funny. The six degrees of separation here is that the on the Dokken record that Billy White played on, the drummer is Mickey D, who's now in the Scorpions. Uh, Mickey D was in King Diamond, uh, who sang for Merciful Fate, and Watchtower opened for King Diamond. Yeah. This would have been '86 uh, at the Ritz, and. 
So Billy White and Mickey D are in the same building together. I don't even know if they met. And so 86, so seven, eight, nine, three years later, Billy White is sleeping on me and Scott Delhoover's couch, Dangerous Toys guys. We're in LA recording and Billy calls me and goes, I need a, so can I surf your sofa? I'm on a secret mission in Los Angeles. He was auditioning for Dokken, but he wouldn't tell me and Scott <laughs> who he was auditioning yeah. for, and that would have been 88. 88. Yeah, that would be that would be eighty eight. That was that would yeah, be right. Only only two two years after being in you know King Diamond Watchtower playing the Ritz in he's Austin, like, Texas. Like, two years later, Billy White's but, playing but guitar Mike, with but Mike Mickey Wagner. Yeah. Saw him, you know. I mean, he he produced it. He knew that that was a guy. Uh, oh yeah. You know, when George Lynch left. So and, Wagner uh, played the cassette for Don Dawkins. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the, the, the story that I, that I remember was out that Don Dawkins had put a cassette in uh, to record over it and heard, uh-huh. heard, uh, heard, you know, the Billy White had given a cassette and heard uh-huh. it, whatever. But I, I don't know if that's true. I think, you know, Wagner was there. He saw it. He knew Billy White. He was playing. Yeah. He played on the oh, record, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, yeah. whatever it was, Billy White did get in the Dawkins. Well, he was in, Billy White was in the air somehow. Yeah, he was in the air. Yeah, but, uh, somehow. But uh, that was a good one, Billy White and Will McKill. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's I want to I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the the Sims Foundation because uh, Wayne, I, I, aren't you one of the architects of the Sims Foundation? Uh, I'm a I'm a founder. I'm a founder with uh, Don yeah. Harvey, uh, Sims's father, Don Ellison, Alejandro Escovedo, and then an attorney uh, named Walter Taylor. And uh, we just did a a, 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 a which we called the Founders Challenge, uh, um, Don Ellison uh, called us up and uh, I guess he knew he was getting ready to pass and said he had some money and come up with this idea that we that we did and we were able to use the money to hire a publicist because with Sims, the money goes to help the musicians and their families and we really couldn't have a publicist to do what we wanted to do. And Don okayed that and then uh, uh, he passed on, but we were, we we were able to get in Billboard and and on NPR and this and that. But yes, uh, we founded the Sims Foundation in uh, 1995. Yeah, it's still and, going strong. And and again, again for our listeners who aren't familiar, Sim the Sims Foundation is a very well known organization here in Austin and and across Texas. Um, it's named after Sims Ellison. Sims who Ellison. Was the, uh, he was. Yeah, the it's not an player. acronym. It's not an no, acronym. That's it's his first name. Yeah, Sims, Sims, Ellison. Sims Ellison. He was the bass player in a band called Pariah. They were signed to Geffen Records. Uh, there was some high hopes for this band, um, and Sims, uh, unfortunately, sadly, uh, took his own life. And this foundation that Wayne was a part of founding, along with the other people that he mentioned. Uh, the idea was to put together a foundation that would help struggling musicians that were dealing with uh, challenges in their lives and difficulties and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And the reason I want to bring this up is because, as you just alluded to, it's been around for uh, how many years now? Well, t- 26 years. We say 25 because we lost one a year for COVID. We never really had our big 25th blowout, but 26 okay. years. Not, 1995 okay. is when Sims passed. So, so we're talking 25, 26 years, this organization has been around helping musicians deal with, you know, uh, suicide and depression and uh, dependencies and, and a lot of challenges. Yeah. And so I think it's remarkable. And I wanted to bring this up. I, I, I think it's incredible that you that you put this together, not you single handedly, but but you and a, you and a bunch of Alejandro. Other 
Yeah. And it's been around for 25 years. It's done a lot of great work for a lot of people who really need it. And, and God knows where they'd be without it. You know, um, can you give me a sense of how many people this organization has helped or how much give us some sort of brief summary about i'll have to say a thousand maybe i don't know uh but we have helped quite a few it's definitely a need for it and we're uh thanks to this new challenge room we're gonna we're hoping to expand and uh uh i think we'll be opening a sims in uh uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, they got a little scene there and, and we yeah. of course want to open one in, in Nashville and uh, Seattle. So we're starting, it's taken a long time, but we're going to start expanding and helping musicians all over uh, uh, the country. So why and, and their family and their families. Yeah. 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 And, and the crew, that was me. I brought the crew in, of course, you know, <laughs> So yeah, what about the crew, man? What about the crew? Yeah, Help they the crew. do. They, they get they get a they got problems. They get frustrated yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So, to to what do you attribute the the longevity of this organization? Because it, it's not unusual for something like this to pop up immediately after the fact, and then it kind of runs out of steam after a couple of years. But this thing has been going for twenty five years, which is which is incredible. So, to what do you attribute that success? I'm going to say that's the Austin musicians. Uh, they they help. We've we've helped the Austin musicians. We I don't know how many musicians came up and said that that I or Sims saved their life, and and they're willing to give back, and then they give back, and it's just kept going. And after 10 years of SIMS, SIMS began HAM, uh, which is, is an acronym, which is Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, which is uh, health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, you know, why America couldn't do what we did, but um, that happens because musicians needed health care. And it's the musicians. And, and uh, uh, we're always doing fundraisers and, um, and helping. But it's the musicians who have kept it going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're very grateful and and because uh, uh, it, it can be tough. It's, uh, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of depression. Yeah, yes. you know, it's a it's a pyramid. We could go on. and can give the whole rap. But uh, but but, you know, yeah. But yeah and, and it's the perseverance. We've always had good, good people helping good volunteers. I think it's our community, our community. We're, we're a tight community and uh, um, helping. We've helped a lot of people. And um, there's a, you know, it's hard. It's hard to keep going uh, without help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's incredible. I think it's a very important service that's that's provided to a to an uh, to a segment of the population that needs it and might not otherwise have the means to help themselves. So, I just wanted to give you a minute in the spotlight to talk about the Sims Foundation because uh, I think that's as much a part of your legacy as the ARC and all the other accolades we've talked about today. Well, thank you. I think it is. If I was to mention one thing, I think it would be Sims. Uh, and a lot of, and a lot of people, which I'm glad we're talking about Sims because I've gone and, and given this talks where people don't realize that Sims was a person because it's been 26 years mm-hmm. because most of these organizations are acronyms and names, but Sims was a person. He was, he was, and he was a beautiful person. He was a, uh, you know, uh, he was in the band Pariah, uh, and Pariah was a band that was in the, uh, I guess, a sibling band of the Dangerous Toys at the same time as mm-hmm. Jason's band, Dangerous Toys. And I was a, a, a co-manager of Pariah with uh, uh, Kevin Womack, and they, um, you know, it was that era, and they had a, a, they were signed to Geffen, and things looked good for them, and, and their headquarters, it goes back to the Ark, their headquarters was the Ark, which was where you know, they hung out and everything. And then when he did pass, 
of the thing. It didn't happen for, for Pariah. And the reason was it wasn't Pariah. It was the, that this is an example of the record company or on this one was the producer. And I'm going to call him out. That would be Tom Zutat, who had huge success with Guns N' Roses and some other bands. But uh, Pariah saw the shift that was going on in the music. And uh, um, Tom Zutat did not see that shift. And I remember him telling them that you're a metal band. You'll always be a metal band. And uh, they weren't. They were changing. And uh, it did change. And it changed with... Uh, uh, Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and that, and Priya was going in that direction. And uh, so all of a sudden, after 20 years of metal selling records and being top, there was a break. And that was when their record came out. It was just a bad timing. But I really thought that Tom Zutat, when they were making that record, that they were going in that direction. Uh, um, and, you know, he didn't see it. You know, he didn't yeah. see it. Yeah, uh, I think that I think that the songs that ended up on the prior record, uh, Tamaka Killingbird, uh, is like leftovers from them wearing, you know, tight pants and right. sing and singing real high. And I yeah, think they, that they, the material they were writing was, certainly they were trying to sell it to Tom and he wasn't having any of it because he he's like it. you said he's you know you're a metal band you're always going to be a metal that's band. Exact and so that's what him. he made he made them fit what he wanted them to be at the time because yeah. he wanted him you know and, uh, he wanted them to be a guns and roses thing because that was the feather in tom's hat right. i think and it's too bad that he didn't see it because tom could have saved the day by 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 working with the band to do this shift in the songs on the record that Pariah did record that never really came out. And, and they they, because like in every band, the do it yourself, they did their own records. And they, yeah. if you put their own records together, they sold as many records as the major label record that cost a hundred thousand dollars to make or whatever. That's right. So, you know, you know, we could have just kept doing our, our, our own. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, but it was a good, it was a good run. Um, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, the Sims being a real person and and we all called him a friend and he was a roommate of mine uh right. you know, just just like 2 weeks prior to his passing. Uh he lived with me and Jeff Tweedy. Um, yeah, he was a good one. We but, love, we love But Sims. it's just too bad and you know uh his closest friends I don't even think saw that coming. Yeah. So And and one of the reasons we have Sims is because an example uh is his brother Kyle? Um, you know, he after Priya, Kyle somehow ended up in the Butthole Surfers, and so Kyle and the Meat Puppets uh, and the Meat Puppets and from the, the Butthole Surfers, <laughs> these legendary yeah, bands. Yeah, right. he, Kyle. There's a reason. There's a reason. Yeah, but the right. point being, Kyle had just lost his his brother, his bandmate, his best friend, and and he's yeah. at, he's 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 talking to a a, a family a family counselor or psychiatrist or whatever and and this this guy is talking to him not really he, he he kept going on you're in a band called the butthole surfers you know he's not you know he wasn't helping you know with no. sims the counselors they're they're our musicians they know about it they're not going to be shocked that you they're, have that you're tatted fan, up they're fans of the butthole surfers the fans of the butthole surfers <laughs> they, they got the records exactly the record, this instead goes, of going you're doing this all wrong you need to yeah. you need to yeah. just dress different yeah. and get yourself in a calming situation no it's like that 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 <laughs> 
person with the degree doesn't really know what right. they're trying to do. And I think and that I know this... they meant well and the family meant well. Sure. But that's one of the reasons why we did the uh, the Sims uh, is so to help the musicians with people who who knew because they don't they don't always uh, rock and roll people uh, helping yeah. rock and roll people. Yeah, yeah. 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 I yeah. think that so, it's a great and great back foundation. to you, Dave. Back to your your question on how it lasted so long is because so many people are willing. We we the uh, the counselors that are helping that they're doing that for for a cut rate. Um, you know, they're giving their time. There's a lot of pro bono work going on just to help to, to, to keep the, to keep this, uh, uh, scene going on. And, uh, um, and one of the, in this, cause we hit without the musicians and the artists, we're not going to, we are no live music capital of the world. We're not this bohemian utopia, uh, that we, that Austin is. Yeah. Good, good, good point. And I think that goes back to the community at large in, in Austin, the, the arts community. And since we're talking specifically about music, uh, you, you do find a, uh, that people that are music fans in Austin know more than your average bear, so to speak, about music, you know, right. because they're either they've either been in bands, they have friends in bands uh, in Austin. You're you're only three steps away from some some form of the music business. And so there's a lot of integration, I think, where people are a little more educated about, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on and that's where, and that's why you get, you know, that, that quality or that, that type of person, uh, you know, a, a medical professional, a mental health professional or whatever, who is a music fan and understands music beyond what is being force fed to them on the radio. An example would be like my dentist, uh, contributes to Sims and ham, you know, you go in his office, he's got the stickers and, you know, et cetera, you know, so the community is helping support it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I applaud you. I think it's a great thing. And I'm, I'm Thank just you. thrilled that it's been going on for 25 years and is still going strong. And, and, and we're, uh, um, no, it's tough. I got, uh, it's hard because it's hard, especially now in COVID when musicians need it the most and people don't have the money to contribute. So it's hard that we're still doing it. We we're, we're always struggling, which is why we did a challenge, challenge uh, our founders challenge and, and we're, but we're going to expand and we're going to keep going and hopefully it'll still be here uh, in 26 more years. Yeah. yeah. That founders challenge is like, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, we did. We, yeah. we raised uh Don Elson put some money up. We matched it and, and we raised it in uh uh, we're pretty, I'm pretty proud of it. What Alejandro, Don Harvey and I did. Uh, awesome. And that, in fact, Alejandro put his, his heart and soul out, you know, cause he was, he was the one who was being interviewed. You're not you know, interview me or Don, you know, Alejandro is the one that that's in billboard or on, you know, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, Alejandro is uh, wearing an invisible crown in my book. Yeah. He's yeah, a real uh, deal. Yeah, yeah real he is deal. a real deal. And he's he's rock and roll and punk rock and heavy metal all rolled into one just cool, mellow dude. And if you don't know who Alejandro Escovedo is and you know who Sheila E is, y'all need to do some Wikipedia work. That's right. You Google it. <laughs> yeah. Google While you're at it, look up Javier and Mario. Javier. Hello. Hello. The, yeah, yeah. The True Legendary. Believer is one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, the true yeah. believers, and that first rank and file rank album, and which file, was the first yeah. the first country punk uh, record, was that with Alejandro on it, the the, yeah. the uh, Chipman Brothers. Yeah. Um, Man, we could we could talk about the legend of Austin, Texas, and your knowledge of the whole thing. Hey, do you you know before we uh, 
before we kind of tie up loose ends here, do you have any Stevie Ray Vaughn stories? Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> I, bet I bet you, you do. do. We, we got to limit you to two. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I'm just kidding. Uh, Give us a good well, Stevie, one. Well, Stevie, uh, uh, when, right, when we had the Continental Club, he was beyond playing. I mean, he could play bigger places. He hadn't really, you know, he wasn't national yet, but he was, you know, he was playing, uh, you know, the Continental Club was a 200-seater, and he was playing, uh, uh, you know, 500-seaters. But he would play once a month for us, uh, and he'd play the full moon. What and, year? Uh, that this would be 82, okay. 80, 82 and 83. So for two good solid years. And that's when he had the trio. Uh, uh, that was the double trouble with Tommy and, and Whipper and they would play uh, on the full moon. And it was big for us. Cause if it's the full moon was the beginning of the month, that would, that money would pay our rent. If it's the middle of the month, it would pay the TABC bill, which was, those are the two big bills. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we love Stevie and it just, you know, he'd just pack them in and uh, uh, there'd be so many people in there that we would, uh, we, this is, we did before video monitors, uh, the VCRs just came out and the VCRs when they came out, they came, they came with a video camera. Uh, they cost, oh, wow. they came with a video camera. So uh, Joe Bryson had entered uh, Satan records. He had one and we'd bring our TVs and put them around the club or outside. So, and he would film it. So people stand in line to get in to see Stevie playing. But That's uh, cool. the, the story we, if you've been in the continental club, as I said, it's a 200 seater. And so I, I'm didn't, paying, I didn't even know it would hold that many. I didn't it's, think a, so either. it's a sardine <laughs> can. Here's, it's a shoe box. Here's, yeah. here's story number one. So one night I'm paying his tour managers, Cutter Brandenburg and Stevie got the door and, uh, and we were charging $5 on a Monday wow. night, which $5 is a lot. And when we were counting the money, we're paying him. I paid uh, Cutter $2,500, which meant 500 people came through there. Well, where did they go? Now, wow. one of the things is Stevie played all night. He would do two sets. He would start at 10 and play at 1130 and then go to 12 and play to two. So wow. there's a big changeover. But we're all just besides a $2,500 payday, which was pretty good on a Monday night in 1982. Yeah, it was oh, like yeah. 500 people, you know. In a 200, <laughs> wait, how did they, yeah. where's the fire marshal in this? Yeah, they, 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 they were, they, they were so they, that, that, that wasn't around back then. They yeah, had, that didn't happen know, back then. That well, didn't happen. And the well, drinking age was eight, the drinking age was 18 at the time also. Yeah. Well, the, the fact that you were all kind of like poor man's via satellite with the gigantor, yeah. uh, v, VC, you know, VHS cameras and the TVs around in 1982, yeah, yeah. a $5 cover. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, so, that's we're, we're ahead of the, we're ahead of the game. And a lot of that was, uh, uh, was, was Joe Ely was, was a lot of that. Cause he was, he was the very first of, uh, you had that album high res. He was the first one that was yeah. doing the computers and stuff, but that was Joe Bryce of inner sanctum. Uh, uh, but that would be a Stevie story. In, Inner Sanctum Records, the record yeah. store down Inter near Sanctum, the drag. Yeah, it, yeah, it was yeah. it was the predecessor of Waterloo. That was the okay, one that was on the drag. Right. And, well, and it's an a, infamous store. I bought many yeah. records from Inner Sanctum. Yeah, yeah, Inner Sanctum. But Joe, uh, he was the video guy. Joe Bryce. So give him a shout okay. out. He's the one Sweet. who brought the, the video in. Well, then, uh, he, he brought you into the next century with that. Yeah, shit. he brought that's, us into the next century. That's <laughs> right around pre-MTV kind of stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what about one more, one more story? Can, and and I would like to try to tie it into David Bowie. 
SRV and David Bowie. Do you, were you in the room when when it was kind of discovery moment? Was um, David yeah, Bowie well, we, walking to the club kind of a thing? No, no, David, David, Give us a scenario. How did that? How does that story go? Well, I'm gonna have to. Uh, David Bowie <laughs> did not uh, come in. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't remember him coming in the kind of club, but he was he was got hip to it. Stevie was so good that people, I mean, knew about people heard about him. You know, he uh uh he he auditioned for uh, Jagger, had him play a private party. Wow. Uh, Jackson Brown gave him uh uh studio time to, they did that album and uh uh you know, Bowie uh I can't really remember the story and how Bowie found probably I, was, I, was, I word of mouth. Da- David, <laughs> tell us the story. Tell us the story, I, David. I know the story. So uh, apparently, Bowie saw uh, Stevie Ray play at the Montreux Jazz Festival oh, in. Okay. Uh, is that Switzerland or Switzerland? Switzerland. Switzerland. And so they were basically, they didn't know each other, but they were both performing at this festival. And I, if memory serves me, Bowie saw him play at that festival and that's what put him on his radar. Right. And then okay. how, makes sense. how things transpired after that, I don't know, but that's yeah. how Bowie became aware of. Let Stevie. me, let me put, let me throw some, uh, some, some gold stars towards metal Dave here. Now, Dave, you have interviewed David Bowie and was it in, do you recall your questioning be like the SRV connection? And yeah, well, it's, that? it's, it's funny. So. It's funny that you bring this up. Cause I was going to mention this earlier. I was, doing a phone interview with David Bowie. Uh, this would have been about 96, 97. He was coming to play at the South Park Meadows with Nine Inch Nails. And so, you know, it's a phone interview. So he finds out that I'm based in Austin and he immediately goes, oh, Austin, so many great guitar players in Austin. And he rattled them all off. Charlie Sexton, Ian Moore, Eric Johnson. He just, he totally knew all the hotshot, you know, guitar slingers in Austin. And I I was impressed with that. I was, I was like, wow, this guy That's is like big. British rock royalty. And he knows all the guys that are still playing, you know, the Continental Club and Antones and stuff like that. He was really well informed about the 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 caliber of guitar players that we have here in Austin. And, you know, Charlie Sexton played with David. Yeah. Boy. And then Charlie yeah, went on to play with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. David is a good one. Yeah. Man. And and the first oh, uh, back to back circle the, the very first uh, demo that Charlie uh, recorded uh, when the record companies first came in the producer was Mick Ronson uh, from the Spiders from Mars wow. at Riverside yeah, I couldn't believe it and wow. I'm driving him I'm thinking of the airport and you know I'm driving him I have a, a Toyota Corolla <laughs> you know I'm picking him up in my old an old Toyota Corolla you know picking up Mick Ronson. Um, uh, a wow. spider from Mars. And that was, I wish, I wish he had been the producer personally. I mean, that was the stuff mm. that I, I liked the best, but yeah. uh, anyway, a little bit well, of to, a to be able, separation. To be, yeah, able yeah. To, have, to, be, to be able to have one of the spiders from Mars as your producer on just like your earliest shit is yeah. otherworldly anyway, whether you're yeah. from Mars, a spider or not, that's just, <laughs> and wacky. I have to say he was way cool. Oh, I bet. Oh, I now bet. here's here's the deal. You look at old pictures of Mick Ronson, and he's wearing Randy Rhodes' outfit. 
Yeah, right. Right. He, he looks copied. like Randy, Randy Rhodes copied, copied him, yeah. right? Yeah. Copied him. For all you yeah. headbangers out there but, who you know want to put on a Diary of a Madman and you see pictures of Randy Rhodes, look up Mick Ronson. Yeah, we'll wait. Yeah. Go ahead. We'll wait. Yeah, look, Go ahead. <laughs> Randy admits it too. I mean, Randy oh, yeah. made Randy oh, yeah. made no bones. Well, about he wouldn't. It. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have had a, a pot to. He wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. And just someone go. Hey, what's the? Who's this Mick Ronson trying to rip off Randy Rhodes? Nobody. You got it wrong. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, the, Mick Ronson really didn't get his due, in my opinion. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he was a good one. He was a good awesome. Well, Absolutely. listen, Wayne, I'm going to be, I, I hate to do this because we could go on for hours, but man, it has been extremely spectacular yeah. to just pick your brain about a lot of awesome things with your uh, highlighting points in your career, as well as getting some good stories that, um, you know, are just not uh, uh, reveled enough that are, that are not, uh, you know, in a, somebody's scrapbook somewhere or, or maybe not even have been covered yet in the history of Austin music. So yeah. I thank you from the bottom of my, my heart well, for being here with us today, buddy. Well, thank you. Uh, I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah Wayne, it, it was great meeting you. Uh, as you said at the top of the show, I, we've probably crossed paths, but uh, I've never had the opportunity to have a conversation with you. And today was was awesome. I really well, enjoyed picking your brain. And Well, uh, I'm sure and, uh, once this COVID thing is finally done, uh, we'll be out more. Yeah. Nice. And, and, you know, thank you for sharing all your, your stories. Thank you again for your work with the Sims Foundation. Um, well, I called him. What did I call him earlier, David? I called this guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jason what, sent me a text and said, he's the coolest guy in Austin. <laughs> well, I, I'm not kidding. Stand by that. <laughs> well, you're too kind. I'm going to have to say that's Charlie Sexton, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he may disagree with me that I, that I think you're the coolest guy in Austin. <laughs> Well, well, thank you very much. I, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. You're thank you for your time today. And that's it for another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, our very special guest today, Mr. Wayne Nagel, a wealth of information. We really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Talk Louder podcast. 